Hello, and welcome to The 5 by the bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Ruth mixes up a batch of the Quacks of Quedlinburg. I'm on the mean streets with Block by Block, the Insurrection Game. Ruel explores alien frontiers, and Luke rolls the dice with Coimbra. But first, Mike takes a look at Clans of Caledonia. In the fall of 2017, two contenders entered the ring to challenge Terra Mystica, one of the greatest and most respected games in board gaming. Gaia Project, covered by Cat back in episode 28, was given the presumptive nominee status due to its being a direct re-implementation and designed by the same team. And such was at the top of my list to play at SawCon last year. The other was Clans of Caledonia, designed by Juma Aljuju and clearly inspired by Terra Mystica, but with an added market and sales mechanism. Which, I have to say, didn't really interest me, so it was at the bottom of my to-playlist. And as you may now guess, since I'm about to cover Clans of Caledonia, once I got to SaltCon, everything changed. I tried Gaia Project with fellow Terra Mystica players, and while they loved it, it just fell flat for me. Then I reluctantly tried Caledonia with a mixed group, and while I wasn't instantly blown away, I stewed on the game and thought about the game, and how I would play the game differently next time, and different strategies I want to try, and different clans to try, and I love when a game really engages my brain and captures me like that. So I just had to get it. And for the rest of the review, I'm actually going to try to avoid direct Terra Mystica comparisons, as that may be of limited value to listeners. In Clans of Caledonia, everyone picks a different Scottish clan to play. Each clan has its own unique ability, based on what that clan is known for. Then we pick our two starting locations on the board, which is made of hexes of different terrain types, paying the cost for your starting worker and space. From there you expand your clan out across the board, building farms, distilleries, dairies, etc. Because the obvious goal in Clans of Caledonia is to be the best clan. And how do we do this? Well, at the end of the game, you get points for completing the most contracts. You get points for the imports you get for your exported contracts. You get points for having the largest settlements. And you get points along the way for completing round objectives. Round objectives are fairly straightforward with things like one point for every basic good in your supply, or three points for every two processed goods, or points for deployed units, etc. I like games that give you goals each round as they help rein in the choices of what you'll do for each round, and there are a lot of choices in Clans of Caledonia. You'll also want to try and maximize your clan advantages. For instance, if you're Clan Campbell, you'll want to build more processed goods factories and find export contracts that tie in with that. But if you're Clan Stewart, it may be better for you to trade for processed goods depending on the prices. Like most medium-heavy economic games, there's a lot to consider and a lot to keep track of, which is why the reference at the end of the rules is greatly appreciated. Each round you'll build out your clan as much as you'd like, aiming for resources that benefit you in the long run, buying goods that you don't want to wait to produce to fulfill contracts, and selling any goods that you produce that you no longer need. And while expanding your clan, you may consider cutting off other clans to limit their expansion. But unlike many medium-heavy economic games, there's very little screw-your-opponent opportunities. After the first two rounds, it costs money to buy contracts, so you aren't going to take one that doesn't work for you just to mess someone up. And while buying and selling goods adjust the prices, those adjustments are relatively small fluctuations. Sure, you might bump a price just out of reach of an opponent, but money is tight in Clans of Caledonia and usually not to be wasted. Most of your money will go into buying plots of land and expanding your clans. Terrain goes from 1 to 6 coins each with the cost of what you're building on top of that, and frankly, it can really add up. So be careful where you want to build, because you want to be efficient with cost but you also want the largest connected settlement bonus at the end of the game. 
And I like that while there are technological improvements where you may invest to make your lumber mills or mines more efficient or to increase your shipping range, you don't have to worry about a traditional tech tree to build out specific buildings. You want a whiskey distillery, but you don't want to pay for expensive wheat fields? That's fine. Just make sure you have the traders and money needed to buy the wheat you'll need. It's very freeing to be able to use a market and not have to sustain all points of your supply line. And one of my favorite parts of the game, focus instead on what you do best, because while your clans may be slowly inching across the board, the rounds move quickly with each player doing as much as they can, or want, to do before marking themselves as finished for the round and taking their turn order spot for the next round. As competing for space on the board is the main interaction in the game, I appreciate that clan scales nicely with different board options for 2 to 4 players. I kind of wish it played more, but I do understand why it doesn't, especially as the learning curve and path choosing at the beginning often leads to a slow start with a quick middle that min-maxing at the end leads to another slowdown. There is a solo option where you play for a high score, and while I used to love those, some of the more recent Atoma-type solo games have piqued my interest more, so I haven't tried it. So that's Clans of Caledonia, a midway economic game that, frankly, with so many moving parts, could have been a mess, but Aljuju really knocked it out of the park, and Clemens Franz's art keeps everything nice and clear and helpful. I find the complexity to be a little high, with the teach a little long and difficult to explain, but maybe that's just my own deficiencies. Either way, I personally find Clans of Caledonia worth the time and effort to learn and one of my new favorite games. If you have any further questions about Clans of Caledonia or anything else, you're more than welcome to reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here talking about a game that I waited months for between my first plays and getting my own copy. But it's a game that was absolutely worth every minute of that wait. During June of 2018, I got to play a German edition of The Quacks of Quedlinburg, thanks to my good friend Chris Kopak, who brought a copy with him to Origins. I absolutely adored the game, but I chose to wait on the announced US release. Published by Norsar Games, this edition features just a few cosmetic changes from the game I originally played. After getting it to the table, I knew it wasn't just the rosy glow of nostalgia that had had me so excited. The Quacks of Quedlinburg, or Quacksalber as I will continue to call it, is just an amazingly fun gaming experience and I can't wait to play it more and more. The Wolfgang Warsh design is set during nine days of a local festival, during which players are creating patent medicines from a host of strange ingredients, hawking potions with claims of curing anything and everything. Of course, in reality, the potions being created are purely meant to raise the brewer's own renown and earn them fame and fortune by the end of the event. But throwing a little bit of everything into a pot can be volatile, and cauldrons have been known to explode, leaving practitioners scrambling to glean at least a few coins or a bit of prestige from their smoking remains in order to save face. How all of this flavor and strange story comes to the table is in the form of a bag-building pressure luck game that has two to four players fishing chits from bags in hopes of getting as far as possible along their cauldron brewing track without busting from pulling out too many white cherry bombs. If they manage to stop without busting, players will gain both points and the chance to purchase more ingredients for their bag. Busting means a player has to make a choice, only getting one of these two rewards from the round. And the fact that busting doesn't mean you're 
whole round was wasted, just that you have to decide whether to shop or take points, is an aspect I really like about Quacksalber. It's not always an obvious decision which to take, and it means that busting doesn't take a player out of the running, especially since players further behind on the score track get to start their next potion further along the track, which actually makes it desirable to stay just that little bit behind the leader until the final rounds of the game. When purchasing ingredients at the end of each round, players can choose one or two additional tokens to add to their bag depending on how much currency they've earned. Each of the available ingredients brings with it its own special ability that triggers either immediately upon being placed in a cauldron, or at the end of the round modifying the scoring phases. The abilities come in various forms, moving the player further along the track, letting them control their next draw, or maybe throw unwanted ingredients back into the bag, or simply earning them extra points or rubies. The choice of which ingredients to buy during this phase is where players get to diversify in terms of strategy, choosing to go for big rewards or simply for risk mitigation. It adds a lovely layer of decision making to a luck-based game, as it lets you be in control of how your odds of a good draw are going to shift over the course of the rounds. And before you think that the abilities on display are going to result in a single dominant strategy emerging, well, honestly I can tell you I'm not too worried about that. The luck of the draw during brewing means that building the same ingredient pool game after game doesn't mean you're going to get a consistent, reliable result. And in all of my plays so far, players have successfully brewed valuable potions using a whole variety of approaches. Plus, if you do find it hard to leave behind a comfortable strategy and try different things on subsequent games, well there's force separate sets of ingredient powers to choose from, or you can even mix and match ingredient abilities from different sets. This lets you change up the available options and force yourself to explore a new play space. Not to mention that the player boards themselves are double-sided, the back of them providing a second play mode that adds a track players can expend droplet movement on to earn extra points or ingredients. This variability is a reason I can see the game being played over and over. So my North Star edition of Quacksalber features the same lovely colourful art from Dennis Lahausen and Wolfgang Warsh on the tokens, player boards, and score track as were seen in the German edition. But it features one notable change. The wooden tokens for each player are now matched to the red, yellow, blue, and green of the player boards instead of being a set of, well, entirely unrelated colours. This makes it easier to remember which token represents which player on the score track. It's a small thing, but it is a welcome update. Everything seems lovely quality, and while I'm not sure how well the cardboard chips will stand up to repeated bag draws and shuffling, so far my copy has been pretty well played and seems just fine. The Quacks of Quedlinburg is probably my favourite game of 2018, and it's already one of the most played titles I obtained during the year, despite my having owned it at this point for less than a month. It's a charming production that plays nice and quickly once everyone gets the hang of how the draws resolve, which usually takes just a single round of play. It harnesses the excitement of push your luck with the ability to craft your ingredient pouch the way you prefer to play, and this makes it a great game for a variety of players. I know I'm going to be taking my copy everywhere in the hopes of introducing as many new players to Quacksalver as possible. Hopefully if you try the game you'll find just as much fun in your bag as I've managed to, and so I'd love to hear if you have a favourite ingredient or a great exploding potion story. You can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. There are a lot of games about armed conflict. These games are often set in the distant past, which has the benefit of first, giving game designers some flexibility in their portrayal of events, 
And second, giving players emotional distance from the import of what's happening in the game. Block by Block, the Insurrection game, turns that convention on its head. Designed by R.D. Lee and T.L. Simons and published in 2016 by Out of Order Games, Block by Block depicts rioting in a modern city. The game isn't about a real-life conflict, but think of Arab Spring, the riots in Greece, or the Ferguson unrest, and you'll have the idea. In Block by Block, you play one of four factions, students, workers, neighbors, or prisoners, working together to hold off the police and liberate the city, one block at a time, thus the name Block by Block. Each player has a secret goal or agenda. Players can coordinate their actions, but can't reveal their agendas. Though in practice, there are only a few different agendas, and once you know what they are, it's usually clear what players are going for. While most co-op games I've played get more difficult at higher player counts, Block by Block is one if two players achieve their agendas, regardless of how many people are playing. This makes the game often easier with more players. In the last game I played, early on I realized my agenda wasn't going to happen, abandoned it, and spent the rest of the game playing support to help the others achieve their agendas. It allows a certain flexibility that I enjoy very much in a co-op game. Now, Block by Block is actually semi-co-op, meaning that while most agendas are meant to be one together, there are two solo agendas, the Vanguardist and the Nihilist, and if either of them wins, the other players lose. Here I have to admit that I've only played Block by Block full co-op, with the non-co-op agendas removed. I'm sure semi-co-op changes the game a lot, adding a great deal of tension. However, I find the full co-op game plenty tense. Block by Block is played over a series of days. Players take their turns during the night, and the police move and take action at sunrise. Police reduce your mobility, remove your people from the map, and reclaim city blocks you've occupied. After each player turn, you draw action cards from the police ops deck. This could add more police, change their position, sometimes even reduce police presence if you're lucky, but you're rarely that lucky. Player turns are straightforward. You roll dice and use them to take actions, like move around the city, add more people to your faction, occupy a city block, build barricades, loot a shopping mall to gain useful items, or attack the police. This may feel uncomfortable to some. If you're playing a game about, say, the War of the Roses, it's easy to forget that the tokens you push around the board represent people fighting and dying. But when you're playing block by block and throwing Molotov cocktails at riot vans, you can't pretend it's about something else. The police are the enemy in this game. The very first page of the rulebook reinforces this by telling you the start player is the one who most recently had a negative interaction with law enforcement. There are some nice little details in Block by Block that fill out the theme, make it feel more real, like the special abilities for each faction. The prisoners, for example, are better at fighting, while the neighbors are better at building barricades, because they live there and have access to barricade materials. They know where the old tires are. On the other hand, some details seem a bit odd if you think too much about it. Like, there's a police morale track that determines how many police ops cards you draw after each turn and how fast the countdown clock runs down. You can reduce police morale by attacking them and removing them from the city. I see what they're going for. When the rioters are in control, it's more difficult for the police to take action. But still, you attack the police and they respond by doing less? Maybe I'm overthinking this part. Rather than a board, block by block has square tiles representing city blocks, which you lay out on a cloth mat. The city map changes from game to game, which can affect gameplay pretty drastically. The art by designer T.L. Simons is very appealing, done in a graffiti style with people drawn as anthropomorphized blocks. To me, it feels a bit like Keith Haring meets Evan Dorkin. I'm not sure how well the art would work for colorblindness, and I'd hesitate to recommend block by block to someone with vision problems.
That said, the card art is stylish and colorful and reinforces the feel of the game taking place in a modern city. There's even a dog among the protesters on the rulebook cover, just like the Greek riot dogs. There's a tendency to assume that games aren't political unless they challenge your politics, but this is sloppy thinking. Most, if not all, games have a political point of view. It's just easier to ignore the politics if you agree with them. Placed as it is in the modern world, Block by Block pushes us to think about the political reality it depicts. This is one of its strengths, but more important than that, it's just fun. Challenging, strategic, with dramatic twists and turns, Block by Block can feel like an epic victory or defeat. And that's Block by Block. I've seen it from online sellers for an absurd amount of money, but you can get it direct from the publisher, out of order games, for a much more reasonable cost. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not building barricades out of old tires, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Ever since my parents took me to see a little art house film called Star Wars, I've had a fondness for science fiction. My love of all things space-related carried over into my preferred theme in board games. And when I first saw Alien Frontiers and all of its space awesomeness on the tabletop, I knew it was right in my sci-fi love and wheelhouse. Designed by Tori Neiman, with art by Ross Grams and Mark Maxwell, Alien Frontiers was originally published by Clever Mojo Games in 2010, with a fifth edition produced in 2017. In the retro-cool world of Alien Frontiers, you'll attempt to develop colonies on a newly discovered planet. You'll use your spaceships to exploit orbital facilities and gain alien technology in this dice-driven worker placement and area control game. Your dice are the ships in your fleet. On your turn, roll your dice and place them in one or more of the orbital facilities surrounding the alien planet. Depending on which facility you dock at, you'll gain or trade resources, steal resources from other players, gain alien technology cards, build new ships, that is, unlock more dice, or build colonies on the planet. If you maintain a colony majority in a territory, you'll gain its special ability, but if an opponent comes in, you'll lose the majority and the ability. You'll have to place another colony there, or move your opponent to regain the territory and its ability. Points are scored for colonies on the board, territories controlled, and for having certain alien technology cards. The game ends immediately when a player places their last colony on the board. The most points wins. Along with a good sci-fi theme, I love chucking dice, and there's plenty of both in Alien Frontiers. You roll your dice and find a spot for them to gather resources that you'll eventually use to build your colonies. Since you don't pick up your dice until the beginning of your next turn, you're effectively blocking everyone else from using those spots. Like most modern board games, there are ways to mitigate your bad rolls. Yes, you might not get the numbers you need to perform a cool combo, or you can't be as efficient at churning out resources as you wish, but you're not completely shut out either. There are a limited number of spots for each facility with different conditions for placing dice. For example, to gather ore tokens, Dock your ship at the Lunar Mine, which means you have to use a die that's equal to or greater than the highest value die already there. Don't be surprised if this is a 6 on your turn. You could go to the Solar Converter instead and place dice for fuel tokens, which you can trade for ore tokens later at the Orbital Market. Or, you can visit the Shipyard to place two equal dice and pay the necessary resources to get a new die or ship on your next turn. There's also some take that in the form of the Raider's Outpost. Place a set of three sequentially numbered dice here, and you may take up to four resources from any mix of players, or one alien tech card from a single player. The alien technology cards and the territory abilities offer plenty of ways to change the game. It's here where Alien Frontiers shines. As you fight for control of territories, 
There's a tug of war when you and your opponents win and lose territories. Some cards require you to pay a resource to use them, while others can be discarded for a one-time power. There are also three field generators that alter the territories on the planet. Each is placed or moved on the planet by discarding the associated alien tech card, and they change the rules of the territory that they're placed on. For me, the biggest issue in Alien Frontiers is the downtime between turns at higher player counts, especially as the game progresses. You have several different things you can do, and it can take some time to puzzle out the most efficient way to get resources, convert them, and so forth. You really can't plan ahead since the state of the board changes every turn. In fact, I'd recommend Alien Frontiers for no more than three players. It's a terrific game for two, since you'll block off spaces on facilities to maintain the attention of a higher player count game without the downtime. And for my money, the Factions expansion is a necessary addition to Alien Frontiers. With Factions, each player gets a unique faction board that does two things. First, they give an owner an ability that they may use on their turn. Second, there's a docking ability that other players may use by paying a cost. For example, if I have the Scavenger Fleet faction, I can immediately use a new ship when I build it at the shipyard. Other players can pay a resource to dock at my Scavenger Fleet, which allows them to dock two unequal dice and build a new ship at the shipyard. Also included in the Factions expansion are secret agenda cards that give players another way to score points. This is an absolute must in my opinion, since without them everyone's basically doing the same thing. The agenda cards allow players to score victory points in different ways. Alien Frontiers is a wonderful game made even better by the must-have Factions expansion. It's a smooth playing dice chucker with excellent components that'll please the most diehard sci-fi fans and can be easily learned by new gamers. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. I love rolling dice, and I love the randomness and excitement they bring to a game. But I also love Euro games, where luck is a four-letter word. I have to cope with this dichotomy inside me every single day. Which is probably why my favorite games give me dice to roll, but let me mitigate the circumstances they create. Dice drafting is easily my favorite action selection mechanism, and dice placement is by far my favorite twist on the worker placement genre. Only two games I've played meld these two mechanisms really well. Vladimir Suki's Pulsar 2849, and now Coimbra, a 2018 Euro game designed by Virginio Geely and Flaminia Bersini and published by Eggerspiel. In Coimbra, each round begins with a player rolling a common pool of dice in four colors. Players then take turns drafting one die at a time and placing it on one of four action spaces in order to either acquire a favor tile or buy a character card from the row adjacent to the action space. Cards provide influence on one of four tracks, as well as an array of instant or ongoing effects to generate currency, movement on a map, think Orleans or Village, victory points, and more. After resolving all tiles and cards, players gain income based on their position on the influence tracks that match the colors of their drafted dice. At the end of each round, players have the option to fund one of six endgame scoring opportunities, a la Terraforming Mars. When a player drafts a die, they place it into a castle-shaped plastic holder in their player color. This seemed at first like it might feel gimmicky, but in truth, it's the entire foundation of Coimbra's drafting and placement mechanism. The holders allow players to track the dice they've drafted over multiple phases of play as they get used for different benefits in a way that wouldn't be possible without them. It's a surprisingly elegant solution. When I first read the rules for Coimbra, it seemed like a fairly straightforward Euro. Once I played it, though, the interaction between drafted dice 
the influence-slash-income tracks, and the card abilities bloomed into a brain-burning puzzle with a surprising amount of player interaction. For example, the pip values of placed dice determine both the order in which players buy cards as well as the cost of a card. Higher numbers go first, but also make cards more expensive, so there's a constant tension between trying to get cards cheap and paying more to get them before someone else does, made all the more interesting by what dice are available to draft. Also, every card moves you up one of the influence tracks, and players score endgame points based on their relative positions. This is a familiar mechanism in Euro games, but in Coimbra the tracks also determine the types of income you collect, so now you have to balance endgame scoring opportunities against the commodities you wish to acquire each round. Low dice can be used to acquire favor tiles that grant an array of benefits for free and are acquired in reverse order from cards, but don't provide influence. Every individual part of Coimbra serves multiple purposes, and they all intertwine in fascinating ways. Die values determine card buys, cards grant abilities and influence, influence and die colors determine income, and income informs the dice you draft and where you place them in the next round. Nothing feels wasted or monotonous, and nothing here feels punitive like excommunication in the designer's previous game, Lorenzo Il Magnifico. It's worth noting that all these interactions can trigger some pretty strong AP, so be aware of that if you're the type of player who pours over every turn. The theme in Coimbra, like most Euros, is real thin. Players in a Renaissance city try to curry favor with the gentry in order to score the most victory points. Most games of Coimbra's ilk opt for staid, classically styled art which attempts to evoke Renaissance portraiture. It's all typically very... brown. Illustrator Chris Quilliams and art director Philippe Garin eschew the beiges of Euro's past in favor of a bright, unique color palette and a cartoony art style that gives Coimbra an inviting table presence, reminiscent of other recent genre breakers like Raiders of the North Sea and the Council of Four reboot. The graphic design in Coimbra by Carla Rohn and Marie-Ève Jolie is some of the best in the genre. Symbology is clear, and icons on the player board spell out each phase in order. Cards with ongoing effects tuck under the player board near the icon for the phase in which they're triggered. After one play, I rarely needed to look at the rulebook again, except to reference the occasional card ability. Even if you do need to look at the rules, they work really well as both a learning tool and a reference. If I have one minor gripe, it's that influence values should be displayed again near the bottom of each card for easier reference and allowing for neater tucking, but otherwise, the design is impeccable. Although, if I'm being honest, I hate money tracks in games because I can't replace them with metal coins. That might be a pretty personal gripe, though. I posted on Twitter recently about suffering from what I called mechanism fatigue, finding it hard to differentiate one conglomeration of mechanisms from another. And while Coimbra shares many aspects with games that came before it, the way they interconnect definitely makes this conglomeration of mechanisms more than just the sum of its parts. Coimbra's the first Euro game in a very long time that has genuinely surprised me, and if you like crunchy mid-weight Euro games with elegant interactions and multi-layered decisions, it's definitely worth a look. It has already earned a permanent place in my collection. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games pretty much everywhere, including BGG, Twitter, and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! You've been listening to The 5 by Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, 5bygames.com. From all of us at The 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.